Good evening. The Apostle Paul wrote in Galatians 6, 14, But far be it from me to boast, except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. It is the death of Christ Jesus that gathered us here this evening. And so it is the death of Jesus Christ I will boast in and proclaim in this hour. And so I pray that it is the death of Jesus Christ you will love, treasure, and cherish through this sermon tonight. Whether you have heard the cross many times or for the very first time in your life, whether you consider that to be the hope of your eternal life or a superstitious myth irrelevant to your life, you are here tonight. And so I pray that you will listen, listen attentively and well. So with that said, let me pray for us, and we'll dive into the text. Let's pray. Lord our God, our Heavenly Father, I now resolve to know nothing except Christ and Him crucified. And it is that message of the cross I will proclaim now. And I am not ashamed of the gospel, even though this cross is folly and foolishness to the world. It is great wisdom, redemption, sanctification, and salvation to those who believe. Lord, so now I plead with you that you will, will glorify your Son. You will exalt him and make him great and magnified in the heart of everyone who is here. Use this earthen vessel in me to proclaim your truth. Let me decrease so that Christ may be glorified this night, we pray. Amen. Amen. The reason why we're, we gather here tonight, the reason why we gather on Good Friday every year is to commemorate death. Now, this commemoration of death, of Christ, is nothing unusual for us Christians. But think for a moment the oddity of remembering death or commemorating death. On November 13, 2022, four students from the University of Idaho were murdered in their sleep by an intruder that has been since apprehended. Several weeks ago, an article caught my eye saying that the house in which the students died was offered to the university, and the university promptly boarded up the whole house for demolition. According to the article, the president of the university said, the house will be uh, demolished. This is a healing step. It removes the physical structure where the crime that shook our community was Committed, uh, committed. And so now you hear clearly what he's trying to say, right? Wiping out the house, wiping out the memory of the house, wiping out the memory of what great evil occurred in that house, wiping out the memory of death. That is a healing step. The memory of death more often opens the wounds of the soul than healing them. Now here we are. Nearly 2,000 years after the death of Christ Jesus, the most evil sin man has committed on earth, we, this church, along with hundreds of thousands of churches across the world, hold services devoted specifically for the purpose of remembering this death intentionally. Why is that? Well, it's so for a simple reason that this is no ordinary death. It is a death through which death itself received its death sentence. It is the death through which we sinners receive the hope of eternal life. It is the death through which we are now continually uh, invigorated and strengthened and renewed. And my goal tonight is very simple. I want to offer Jesus Christ as an all-sufficient Savior to you so that you may marvel at him with fresh eyes and deepened understanding. I want you to see Jesus. I want you to see him uh, to be so much greater than what we often consider him to be and the cross to be so much more bountiful than, than we can possibly comprehend. I want you to remember this and I want to come back uh, this again in the sermon. Every spiritual blessing that you have, that we receive, comes to us through the cross. Everything you have is blood-bought, cross-earned, and death 
merited. You have nothing apart from the cross, and you lack nothing through the cross. And that's my goal tonight, presenting Christ as an all-sufficient Savior to you, and I will accomplish that goal by pointing you to God's Word. So if you have the physical copy of the Bible with you, please turn to Paul's epistle to the Galatians. Chapter 3 will be in verses 13 and 14. Galatians chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. Galatians 3, 13 and 14. Let me read the text for you, and please pay close attention to every verse, because this is the Word of God. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. The theme of our text is plain from the text itself and its immediate context. Look at verse 10. Verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And again, verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And then verse 14, the very opposite of curse appears. In Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. So blessings and curses are the themes of our text tonight. And so I want to draw your attention to two things from the text. First of all, the cursed, the curse of the blessed one. Jesus, the blessed one, was cursed for our sake. And secondly, the blessing through the cursed one. And because Jesus was cursed for our sake, we can now reap the blessings and the benefits, many, many of them in and through him. So two simple points for you tonight. The curse of the blessed one and the blessings through the cursed one. So let me begin. Let's begin with point number one, the curse of the blessed one. We're focusing on verse 13 under this point. Look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on the tree. In this verse, Paul is mainly focusing or concerned with four questions regarding the death of Christ. So let me address them one by one. Question number one, who is it that we speak of? Question number one, who is it that we speak of? Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of of the law. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. It is Christ whom Paul speaks of here. The word Christ means the anointed one, someone who was set apart and consecrated for a mission to accomplish God's purpose and plan. In the Old Testament, the priests, they were anointed so they may, they may become the middleman between God and man. Uh, in, the Old, in the Old Testament, the kings were anointed so that they may become, uh, they may unite God's people under God's rule. In the Old Testament, the prophets were anointed so that they may make God's word and will known to God's people in a clear and convicting way. But whenever you see the word Christ in the New Testament, not the Old Testament anymore, in the New Testament, it does not refer to the prophets or priests or kings in the Old Testament. It always refers to one person, and that is Jesus the Christ. Like the Old Testament uh, prophets, priests, and kings, he was also consecrated and anointed by God. But unlike the Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings, he was not anointed by external rituals uh, with oil. He was anointed spiritually and internally by the Holy Spirit. Jesus was conceived from the Holy Spirit. When Jesus was baptized, the Spirit descended and rested upon him. Jesus preached and prayed uh, in the Spirit. Jesus died and rose again by the power of the Spirit. 
Jesus was the anointed one of God, and he did everything with complete reliance upon the Spirit. And then important implication of this reality is simply this. Because Jesus was anointed by the Holy Spirit and not by mere oil, he is capable of doing and accomplishing everything that was commissioned to him. He is not going to fail. The reason why the Old Testament prophets, priests, and kings, they often fail and fall into sin is because their anointing by oil gives them no power. But it's not so with Christ. His anointing is by the Holy Spirit in the soul. And so there is nothing too difficult for him to accomplish and achieve. Jesus doeth all things well. Because Jesus, the Christ, is anointed by the Spirit. Which leads us to the second question, question number two. What is it that he accomplished? He accomplished everything successfully. What is it that he accomplished? Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. That is, the work of of Christ on the cross is redemption. What is redemption? Redemption is the act of purchasing for oneself that which has been taken captive. I'll say that again. Redemption is the act of purchasing for oneself that which has been taken captive. John Owen, he wrote in the death of death and the death of Christ, redemption is the delivery of anyone from captivity and misery by the intervention of a price or ransom. So a couple of things to pay attention to concerning this concept of redemption. First of all, for something to be redeemed, it must have been first taken captive or enslaved. You cannot redeem something that is free. A prisoner, a slave, can be redeemed. A free man, a citizen, cannot be redeemed because he's already free. Therefore, by saying Christ redeemed us, Paul is claiming that we were not free. Now, you may be baffled or offended by this suggestion. You may say, alongside with the Jews in John 8, 33, we are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? And we're Americans. We have never been enslaved to anyone. Well, you see, the God who made you says in the Bible that we were all under the imprisonment, slavery, and misery of sin. All have fallen, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And whoever sins is a slave to sin. Well, in our sins, we are not happy, but embittered and miserable. Like sin's pleasure is fleeting. It's like a sugar rush. Right? When, when the effect wears off, you crash back down and you're left with bitterness emptiness, and vanity. In our sins, we're not free, but shackled and oppressed by the controlling and dominating power of sin. Right? Maybe your conscience, the residual sense of right and wrong in your heart, maybe that conscience is convicting you that pornography is wrong, or fits of rage are wrong, jealousy is wrong, or hatred is wrong, self-glory and self-pity are wrong. Ignorance and indifference toward God, they are wrong. Maybe you are mustering up all of your willpower to free yourself. Uh, you make resolutions and determinations and never sin that sin again. Right? But the enslaving power of sin is just too strong upon you. The man who falls into the quagmire of sin, he cannot pull himself up by his own strength. And the man who is drowned in the ocean of iniquities, he cannot conquer the tide and reach the shore by his own strength. In our sins, we are not at ease, but burdened by the unbearable weight of sin. In the very first paragraph of the Pilgrim's Progress, John Bunyan gave a description of the protagonist, the pilgrim who was to travel from the city of destruction to the celestial city. What was he like at the beginning of his journey? What does what an unregenerate man look like? Well, I saw a man clothed with rags, standing in a certain place with his face from his own house, a book in his hand, 
and a great burden upon his back. And the brethren and friends, you may be burdened with many things, encumbered with a load of care, the difficult circumstances, the fiery trials, the declining health, the loss of a loved one. But I assure you, there is no burden that is heavier to you than the burden of sin and guilt. It is debilitating, draining, and damning. Any pleasure, any freedom, any ease you may feel in sin, that's an illusion. They're not real. And this sin has a great consequence upon all of us. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. The wages of sin and the curse of the law is death. The soul that sins shall die for his sin. Death spread to all men because all sinned. Sin is not free. It may appear so, but sin carries a fatal and deadly consequence. All of this is to say we are not free because we were slaves to sin, and that is why we need redemption. And the second thing you need to know about redemption is that it requires a ransom or a payment. For a captive to be, to be liberated, for a slave to be set free, a ransom must be paid. And that's very crucial to redemption. And that is why Jesus came into this world. And to bring joy, freedom, and life to sinners and to pay that ransom and the price so that they may be set free. Galatians 5.1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. John 8.36, if the Son sets you free, you will be free Indeed, which brings us to question number three. How does Christ accomplish the work of redemption? We see, we've seen who this is, is the Christ. We've seen what he came to do, rede- redemption. How does he do that? Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. How does Christ redeem us From the curse, one word answer, substitution, substitution. It is at this point we must linger and gaze intently and carefully. Whenever you turn to consider Christ's substitution, you are gazing at the glory of the sun of righteousness, the brightness of of the morning star, the majesty of the Lion of Judah, and the beauty of the Lamb of God. It's all boiled down to this one word, substitution. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The meaning is very plain. There's nothing complicated in this. The sin we committed against God, Jesus took upon himself on the cross. The curse and wrath and death we rightly deserved, Jesus endured and suffered on the cross. What we are as sinners, Jesus identified and became on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Has this substitution become trite and tedious to you? Have you lost the excitement for the cross when you first heard and believed? Let me point out then five things, remarkable things, about Christ's substitution from verse 13. Five things about this substitution. First of all, Jesus was not by nature cursed. Jesus was not by nature cursed. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us. The word became or becoming Become implies that something was, not ori- something was not originally so, but underwent a change and it became that. I became a Christian when I heard and believed because I had not been regenerated before. I wasn't always a Christian. Then I heard, I believed, then I became a Christian. I wasn't a Christian naturally. Jesus became a curse for us because he was not cursed naturally. He was the most blessed one, the eternal son of God, the radiance of God's glory, and the exact imprint of his nature, the theme of heaven's praises and the adoration of the holy angels on high. Jesus was not cursed 
by nature, he is the most blessed one. A second thing you need to know about this substitution is even though Jesus is the most blessed one, he was indeed cursed. Even though he is the most blessed one, he was cursed. In fact, the curse Jesus suffered, humanly speaking, just humanly speaking, for now I'm just speaking in human terms, Jesus' curse, the curse he suffered, is the worst a man can possibly suffer in a humanly speaking way. Verse 13, Christ redeemed us by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. That verse comes from Deuteronomy 21, 22 to 23, which says, if a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he is put to death and you hang him on a tree, his body shall not remain all night on the tree, but you shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You shall not defile your land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. In other words, the curse of being hanged and nailed onto a tree is so offensive, so repulsive, and so hideous that anyone who is cursed in that way must be removed at the earliest date possible. And Paul is quoting that passage and applying it to Jesus. It is public execution, being hanged for the rest of the day, and then immediately that person has to be removed out of sight. Lest that curse defile and pollute all goodness and all virtue in the land, the worst curse a man can possibly suffer. And thirdly, even more remarkably, Jesus was cursed by God. Jesus was cursed by God. Were you paying attention? Deuteronomy 21, 23. For a hanged man is cursed by God. You know the meaning of anathema, cursed by God. The word Paul is using here in Galatians 3.13 carries a, an equal, if not greater, force. It means to be divinely cursed or receive divine vengeance. In other words, this act of Jesus being cursed on the cross is approved by God himself. That's why Isaiah wrote, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It's the will of the Lord to crush him. This is why Jesus cried out on the cross, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because he lies not merely under the curse of man, but also the curse of God. And number four, fourthly, Jesus was cursed by God. He was also cursed by man. Jesus was cursed by a king. Luke 23, 11, King Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Jesus was cursed by a criminal. Luke 23, 39, one of the criminals who were hanged railed at him. Jesus was cursed by the Jews. Mark 14, 65, and some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him. Jesus was cursed by the Gentiles, Mark 15, 19, and they were striking his head with a reed and spitting on him and kneeling down in, in homage to him. Jesus was cursed by the crowd, John 19, 15, they cried out, away with him, away with him, crucify him. Jesus was cursed by individuals, Luke 23, 26, the soldiers also mocked him. If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. The hymn writer is right. Many hands were raised to wound him. None would interpose to save. Jesus was cursed by man. Fifthly and finally, and most importantly, Jesus was cursed for man. Jesus was, Jesus was cursed by man. Jesus was, Jesus was cursed for man. This is the very essence of the cross. Verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. We are the reason why he was cursed on the cross. We are the reason why Jesus suffered the wrath of God. We are the reason why he was hanged on a tree. It is your sins and my sins against the holy God 
that made Christ's curse necessary and inevitable. His nail-pierced hands were pierced for your transgressions. His crown of thorn was worn for your iniquity. His wounded body was scourged for your sins. Jesus' body was struck by man, but the greatest blow was struck by the justice and the wrath of God. Jesus' body was stripped naked, but he was clothed with our sins on the cross. Jesus was crucified on the cross, but it was our sins and all his legal consequences and his dominating power that was crucified on the cross. Jesus bore our iniquities against God, suffered his wrath, and died in our place on our behalf so that we may be set free from the guilt of sin, the slavery to sin, the filth of sin, and the death in sin. Luther wrote this in his commentary on Galatians, on this very verse. All the prophets of old said the Christ should be the greatest transgressor, murderer, adulterer, thief, blasphemer that ever was or ever could be on earth. When he took the sins of the whole world upon himself, Christ was no longer an innocent person. He was a sinner burdened with the sins of a Paul who was a blasphemer, Burdened with the sins of a Peter who denied Christ. Burdened with the sins of a David who committed adultery and murder and gave the heathen occasion to laugh at the Lord. In short, Christ was charged with the sins of all men that he should pay for them with his own blood. The curse struck him. The law found him among sinners. He was not only in the company of sinners, he had gone so far as to invest himself with the flesh and blood of sinners. So the law judged and hanged him for a sinner. Jesus took all your sins, suffered all of God's wrath for your sins, and so that now you are forgiven, cleansed, and set free if you indeed rest and believe in him. And finally, question number four. The fourth question. Talks about who this is, what he came to do to redeem sinners, and how he did it by substitution. Well, the final question is, question four. How well did he accomplish this redemption? I took this economics course. That's what I did. And then I took the exam. And now, how well did I do? Right? Question four, how well did he accomplish this redemption? The answer, he succeeded completely and definitively. If you think about it, the word redemption carries in itself the notion of definitiveness and completeness. There is no such thing as partial redemption. When a prisoner or a slave is set free, is redeemed, the moment the ransom was paid, to his creditor, he is immediately liberated and set free. When the price is paid, the slave doesn't limp between captivity and freedom. He is not half free, half enslaved, half redeemed, half shackled. He is free. And he is free completely. And so it is with the redemptive work of Jesus. There is not a sin of the elect for which he failed to atone. There was not an ounce of God's wrath he did not endure for our, in our stead. There was not a single penalty of sin for which he did not suffer in our place. And again, if the, sin, if the sun sets you free, you will be free indeed. In other words, there's, there's no doubt about it. If you are in Christ, you are free. You are completely free. You are set free. You are redeemed. That redemption is definitive and complete. But the good news doesn't end there. Point number two, the blessings through the cursed one. The blessings through the cursed one. I want to open before you, I want to open to you this great spiritual treasury unlocked by the cross so that you may be uplifted and gladdened and excited and enriched. Right, before, but, but before getting to the blessings of the gospel themselves, let me first say a few words about these blessings. And before getting into the blessings themselves, let me say something about these blessings. They're not as important as the blessings themselves, but they will help deepening your appreciation and raising your affections for Christ. First of all, 
These gospel blessings are simultaneously very costly and completely free. These gospel blessings are simultaneously very costly and completely free. My wife and I got married last year. We went to a very nice hotel in Boston. When we checked in, the manager asked us why we chose their hotel. You know it's a nice hotel when they ask you why. And we said, oh, we just got married and, and came for our honeymoon. And then the manager politely congratulated us and offered to bring a bottle of champagne and some dessert to us. And 20 minutes later, a fancy bottle of sparkling wine and a plate of chocolate-glazed strawberries appeared in our room, completely free of charge. But you see, all the, all the gifts, all these gifts, they're free to us, the customers, but they're costly to the kind-hearted merchants. Someone, someone, somewhere in the process paid something for that bottle of wine and for those strawberries and chocolates. It was free for us, the gift receivers, but very costly to the gift giver. Now, translate that to the, to the gospel blessings. All these benefits of the gospel I'm about to tell you, they're completely free, free of charge for us. But it comes with a steep cost and price to the one who purchased these blessings for us. The blessings are free for the sinner because the Savior paid a very high price to procure them for us, even his very own life. And therefore, brothers, you must remember all that you have regarding your spiritual and eternal well-being and your spiritual good, everything is blood-bought, death-earned, and cross-merited. We have nothing apart from the cross, and we lack nothing because of the cross. Now, the second thing you need to know about these blessings is that they are spiritual in nature. They are spiritual in nature. If you're looking for worldly riches and prosperity, fleshly ease and comfort, entertainment and happiness, material blessings and, and treasures, if you want a trouble-free life where all your circumstances to go right for you, well, then you must look somewhere else because the gospel blessings concern not the flesh but the soul, not the things of this world, but your welfare in the next. Ephesians 1.3, Blessed be the God and Father, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Your gospel blessings are spiritual in nature. And lastly, the last thing about these gospel blessings is they're very great. They are very, very great. Unlike the free samples you get at the mall, right, these blessings are exceedingly great. They're free and they're great. So great that no one on this side of eternity can fully grasp them. However, the tragedy is not that we cannot comprehend them fully, but rather that we do not try to think about them very frequently. And therefore, I invite you tonight, I invite you, all of you, to take a look at what is freely yours at the cross. Take one look, and I pray and I beg you to never look away. Now these blessings are summarized in the second verse, verse, two, verse 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse by becoming a curse for us, verse 14. Look at verse 14, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Right, let me highlight three blessings God abundantly pours out upon us through the gospel. Blessing number one, we gain Jesus Christ himself. That's your blessing. We gain Jesus Christ himself. That's the first prize of the gospel. The gift purchaser is the gift himself. Jesus gave himself up for us so that he can give himself to us. Verse 14. So that in Christ Jesus. In the gospel, we gain Christ Jesus by knowing him. In the past, you were, you were consumed and obsessed with yourself. 
But now you have learned the preciousness of Christ. Philippians 3, 8. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. 1 Corinthians 5.14, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. So to gain Christ, therefore, is to know him and count him as precious and valuable above all things. In the gospel, we also gain Jesus by being brought near to him. In the past, we were of this world. Our friends are worldly, our pursuits are worldly, and our joys are worldly. But now your friendship, your pursuit, and your joy and happiness, your highest delight is Jesus Christ himself. Listen to this. John Owen, he wrote this. When a captive among men is redeemed by the payment of a ransom, he is instantly to be set free from the power and authority of him that detained him. But in this spiritual redemption, here is what is different. Upon the payment of the ransom for us, which is the blood of Jesus, we're not removed from God as we were removed from the creditor, but are brought nigh, brought near to him. Not delivered from his power and authority, but restored to his favor. In other words, in the gospel, we're saved from God and his wrath, to be with God. We're saved from God to God. Boaz redeemed Ruth so that he may bring her to himself. God redeemed Israel so that he may dwell among them. Jesus redeemed us, the church, so that we may be with him and with him forever. 1 Thessalonians 5.10, Jesus died for us so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. In the gospel, we gain Christ by being made one with him. We can know Jesus and we can be brought so near to him because we have become one with him. He is the vine and we are the branches. We are grafted into him. He is the groom and we are the bride. We are in spiritual union with him. He is the head and we are the members of his body and we're inseparably connected to him. Galatians 2.20 I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I live, I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. And brothers, remember this great prize and claim it for yourself. And that is Jesus Christ himself. Blessing number two. We receive the blessing of Abraham. We receive the blessing of Abraham. Verse 14. Look at verse 14. So that Christ died, redeemed us from the curse of law, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. Notice there is only one particular blessing Paul has in mind here. It is the blessing of Abraham, singular, one blessing. Notice also the source of this blessing. It is the blessing of Abraham. Now, what is this blessing of Abraham? Well, it is simply the justification through faith alone to all the nations. Abraham had many blessings, the blessing of a son in Isaac, the blessing of a promised land, the blessing of a nation of Israel from him, but none of these are the blessings Paul is referring to here. The blessing Paul is mentioning here is without a doubt the justification of sinners through faith alone in all the nations. And here's the reason. The first promise Abraham ever received is from Genesis 12, 3. In you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. In other words, the blessing of Abraham is not so much that he will, he will be blessed himself, but rather he will be a means through which others will be blessed. And this blessing is not just restricted to his family, but families all over the world. That's why Paul could say this blessing of Abraham in verse 14 is going to the Gentiles. 
So this blessing could not have been the promised land of Canaan or the promised son Isaac or the promised nation Israel. It has to be something of a global scale. In fact, Paul explains it exactly and clearly what it is just a few verses before our text. Galatians 3.8. Look at Galatians 3.8. That's your blessing. And the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. Foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith. The blessing of Abraham harkens back to Genesis 12, which Paul tells us is all about justification through faith. But let's not forget the point, the main point. The main point is not Abraham. The main point is even, not even justification. The main point is the source, the root, and the foundation of that justification. It is Jesus Christ and the blood of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 9. We have now been justified by his blood. That's the main point. Christ became a curse for us so that we might be justified before God and be right with God. He cleansed you of every sin by his blood and clothed you with his spotless and perfect righteousness. Jesus became as much a sinner as you so that you might be as righteous as he is. That's your blessing number two, the blessing of Abraham, the blessing of your justification by the blood of Christ through faith. Blessing number three, last blessing for you. We receive the promised spirit. We receive the Spirit. Verse 14. Jesus died so that we might receive the promised Spirit through faith. That is to say, the blessing of the Holy Spirit has been promised and prophesied before in the Old Testament. I'll give you one example. Ezekiel 36, 26. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will put my spirit within you. And this spirit Jesus purchased for you by his blood, he now dwells in you, in every believer. He is ever active in our lives to teach us God's truth, to sanctify us, to comfort us, to intercede for us, and to preserve us. But again, the main point is this. The spirit of God is purchased for us on the cross. Every spiritual blessing, every earthly good, every heavenly treasure, every gospel benefit, everything, everything we have is blood-bought, cross-merited, and death-earned. Look at what you have freely in Jesus Christ. You have the forgiveness of sin, you have the justification before God, and you have communion with the triune God. Maybe this evening you stumbled into the sanctuary, you are drained and you're empty. But I want to send you away, rich and full, soaked with the divine blessings purchased for you in the blood of Jesus Christ. And now finally, let me conclude with some applications. Sometimes the Spirit grants so much grace in writing sermons as if the sermon is given from on high. I must say to you, this sermon was not. Almost every sentence was grinded out, written down, only after much wrestling, writing, deleting, or rewriting. My wife can testify to that. But nothing in this sermon has cost me more thoughts, prayers, and meditations than these applications. They're probably not going to be the best applications you have ever heard, but they are scriptural, true applications. I hope they'll be helpful to you. Application number one, get the doctrine of the cross right. Get the doctrine of the cross right. We must get the doctrine of the cross right because it, it, it impacts all other doctrines and practices of the Christian life. If you get the cross wrong, your sanctification will be self-righteous and baseless. Your communion with God will be shallow and unsure. Your assurance of salvation will be hollow and weak and your joy in the Lord will be superficial and fleeting. Get the doctrine of the cross right, because it is not just an exciting theological exercise, 
but the very foundation of your Christian life. Get the doctrine of the cross right. Application number two, meditate upon the doctrine of the cross deeply. Meditate upon the cross deeply. We can argue about the proper subjects of baptism, the meaning of the millennium, the days of creation, and the biblical church polity, but when you come to the cross, you are gazing directly at the center of the Christian faith. Look at that cross when you are doubting. I see your Savior cursed for you. Cling to that cross when you are beset with a temptation. I see your Savior freeing you from the power of sin. Gaze upon that cross when you are troubled by your sins and know that you are forgiven and justified. You are free in Christ. Contemplate deeply on that cross when you are afflicted and tried in this life and know that even if all other things should fail, no one can take away this treasure from you. Meditate upon that cross frequently. Meditate upon that cross fondly. Meditate upon it when you read the Bible and when you pray. Meditate upon it when you take the Lord's Supper and when you sing hymns and spiritual songs. Meditate upon it with your spouse and teach it to your children. I found that the most godly and mature Christian is the one who saturates his mind with the things of God the most. The chief reason why many are stagnant in their spiritual growth is because they're too consumed with worldly affairs and entertainments. He who is most advanced in the faith is most occupied in his thoughts with the cross of Jesus Christ. Much of the Christian life consists, can starts with and consists of your thinking. And the best and the most beneficial thing to think about for you is the cross of Jesus Christ. Brethren, think, think about the cross often. Now let me then briefly give you give you one practical direction on your meditation of the cross. Here it is. Think more specifically on what the cross is meant to accomplish and how Jesus sufficiently accomplished it all. Puritan Thomas Goodwin, he wrote this. Faith is mainly to look onto the end, meaning and intent of God and Christ and his sufferings. And not simply at the tragical story of his death and sufferings. It is the heart, the mind, and the intent of Christ in suffering which faith cheaply eyes, and which draws the heart on to rest on Christ crucified. Translate that into modern English. Don't think of the cross as a story. You meditate upon the cross wrongly, if you only think of the scourging, the mockery, the bleeding, and the crucifying. Nowhere in his letters did Paul ever say, oh, look at the pain, oh, look at, look at the bleeding, oh, look at the wound. He always uses words like atonement, redemption, propitiation, justification, purification, forgiveness, and reconciliation. Think not the story of the cross. Think the heart behind the cross. Application number three, venture upon the blessings of the cross boldly because they are freely yours in Christ Jesus anyway. Let's say if today we filled that nursery with the best and the most fun toys for our children and, and just put them in there and tell them they can play with them any way they want. Do you think our children will, will miss and cry for the old and boring, dirty toys? No, they will leave no toys untouched. But I'm afraid such is the case with some of you. Christ has opened the treasury of heavenly blessings for you by his blood, but you leave them severely underutilized. Do you pray little or fear that your prayers are not answered? Remember, you're brought near to God. Do you feel insecure and anxious? Remember, you have been justified in Christ. Do you feel uncertain about your future? Remember, you have been sealed by the promised Holy Spirit. Brethren, leave no blessings untouched. God will not fault you for being bold in Christ. Christ will not blush or be embarrassed if you take hold of his benefits. Name a blessing rightly and biblically and claim it for yourself in Jesus Christ. And finally, application four, know this, that God loves you.
Know that God loves you. My wife kindly uh, pointed out that I never say God loves you in my sermons and Bible studies. And there's a reason for that. I've heard God loves you said in a nebulous and therapeutic way so many times. I, I'm always, I always, it always leaves me confused and, and unhelped. And therefore, with every opportunity I have, I tell you how God loves you without saying the words God loves you. Well, because, you know, it's obviously implied, right? If I tell you how much, how God loves you, would you not just conclude that God actually loves you? Well, then I realized uh, I love my wife. I serve her by cooking, washing dishes, and carrying grocery sometimes. But But I still tell her verbally I love her. Well, maybe after all, the words I love you are more than just the cherry on top. They carry more power and comfort than I realized. I have told you how God loves you tonight. And I'll do better by telling you God loves you. God loves you with an everlasting love, choosing many of you here in Christ Jesus before time began. God loves you with a steadfast love, even giving his very son to redeem you, to subject to the curse of the law and his wrath. God loves you with a sure love, and he will bring you to himself forever. If you are apart from Jesus Christ tonight, I leave you with this very urgent call to repent of your sins and trust in this all-sufficient and loving Savior. If you are in Christ, I leave you with Paul's words in Romans 5.8. God shows his love for us in that while we are still sinners, Christ died for us. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we praise you for your great love for us in Christ Jesus. Because he died for us while we were still sinners. He redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He was the most blessed one, yet he was cursed. He was cursed by you to be subject uh, to your justice and your wrath. But he was to bring that great blessing, the blessing of justification, the blessing of himself, and the blessing of your spirit. And a host of heavenly treasures and blessings unto us this day. I pray that if anyone here who is not moved and affected and touched by these truths, I pray that your spirit will right now work in them so that they may love Christ. They may see Christ and find their life and joy and everything in him. Lord, we thank you for blessing us with every spiritual blessing. We know everything is purchased by him, by his blood. I pray that we as a church will meditate upon it Day and night, I pray that this church will be a profoundly cross-centric church to your glory, we pray. Amen.